Have you ever walked into a bookstore and noticed just how many books and self-help are being published these days? There's so many books that claim to know the secret to happiness, getting rich, or even developing confidence. Whether you like them or not, it is clear that there is an increasing demand for mental health now more than ever. When you were a child, you probably went to school to learn about the world like the rest of your classmates. But did they teach you about your self-worth or how to evaluate yourself fairly? We may be neglecting how important this is. Research suggests a high relation between a student's mental health and their educational performance. Despite this, the American Journal of Psychiatry has found that nearly 80% of children who struggle with mental health do not receive aid. Hello everyone, my name is Vesta and welcome back to another episode of Wise Words. In last week's episode, we spoke to Dr. Richard Davidson about well-being and why it matters. He told us that well-being is a skill and can be practiced and taught like any other subject in school. The concept of well-being can be very broad, so we thought it would be a good idea to gather more insight on the topic for a special spotlight episode. We sat down with four aspiring individuals who are deeply passionate about well-being's role in the education sector. I'm Greta Rossi. I'm the co-founder of Recipes for Wellbeing. My name is Jennifer Stafford Dillard. I am a physical education teacher at Qatar Academy Awakra in Awakra, Qatar. My name is Zalash Talamzai, and I am the co-founder and director of Refugee Trauma Initiative. I'm Talia Kaufman. I'm the programs director with Skatistan. I wanted to understand what well-being means to each of these women before I asked more about their field of work. Most of them shared a similar sentiment. For me, in my work and in my life, I think well-being refers to the physical, emotional, and social health of an individual. And it can also go beyond the individual to refer to the health of a community. Health, being a healthy person, is usually the physical and emotional uh, type of well-being. But being a full state of wellness is a state of living a healthy lifestyle. So that's going to include all the dimensions. So you can be considered physically healthy, but if you don't have all the other dimensions, your lifestyle is usually what is considered an all-around sense of well-being. It seems that on the individual level, well-being can extend to all four of these dimensions. But what about beyond the individual? Well-being in the context of our work is is very much about... The first thing is about community. A lot of the people that we work with, refugees that we work with, that is one of the biggest things that they lose when, when you leave your home and you leave your friends and your family and the people you've gone to school with behind. That community is broken and it leaves a huge, huge gap in people's lives. So a big part of our work in general, a big purpose of our work is to work to rebuild those communities, is to make connections between people. You know, if it's in a refugee camp, we try and build a community within that refugee camp. If it's in an urban setting, we try and build connections with parents and children. And we, within the context of our work with young people and young children, you know, we really focus on our relationship with them and what that means and how that can help them feel safe and secure again. So community is a big part of the way that we work with well-being. I think another 
another thing that we try and focus on is purpose. So having, you know, having activities, having trainings, having the kind of programs that really increase the capacity of people that we work with, build their skills, increase their knowledge to both deal with the circumstances that they're in at the moment, but also to have a future-focused approach. And then finally, I think one of the things that we really, really try and include in every aspect of our programming is a space for respite, you know, somewhere where people can go and relax and, yeah. and have fun. Having spaces for leisure and respite seem like a luxury in, in a refugee context, but actually it's absolutely necessary in order to keep people going in order to keep hope alive those you know the, the quality of interactions that you have with people and those kind of spaces when you can share moments of joy with your neighbor or with your child that really makes a huge difference to people I don't think there is a single definition of what well-being is. So I will share the broad concept that we work with, that recipes for well-being. And I'm going to divide it into, I would say, three parts. Uh, the first is that we interpret well-being both as a catalyst for positive change in the world and as the positive change in the world itself. What does this mean? It means that if I can help a young person who is a change maker uh, experience well-being for themselves, that's great, right? I'm helping them to be to be healthier, uh, to feel more whole, and to feel more satisfied in uh, in their life. But also, if I can help this person to then empower others, so to spread in a way well-being to their teams to their society. What we're doing is that we're actually changing the whole world. So that's why I said it's both a catalyst for change and the change itself. And I think this is important because when we talk about well-being, we don't talk just about the self, the individual. Individual well-being is, of course, important, but it's deeply interconnected to and also interdependent from the well-being of others. So these are people around us, the society we live in. So we talk about social well-being. And also it's related to the well-being of the natural world. So this is the wider ecological well-being. So we always look at the three interconnected ecologies, if you, if you want, and we try to see how does each of them impact each other. So we can really create this uh, virtuous cycle. So this is the first important component of well-being. The second component to really understand uh, well-being is that well-being requires positive conditions in our internal and external environments. Mm -hmm. When we talk about the external environment, this is factors like we all need to feel safe and secure. So have good health, you know, have a roof uh, above us, have stable income, um, healthy environment around us, which could be the work setting, could be the school or any other environment that we inhabit. So this is kind of the external side. But we sometimes don't have so much of a leverage. Sometimes we can't change a lot around that. So we try to focus more on the internal factors that have an impact on well-being. And this is uh, related to the feeling to be connected to ourselves, to other people, and how we engage with the world. So we actually, in our work, support well-being for the mind, for the body, for the heart, and for the soul. So we focus on mental, physical, emotional, and spiritual well-being. And we look at the, the relationship of all these four aspects and try to create a bit of harmony. And the, the third component of well-being, which uh, is also very important because I think it can be misleading otherwise, is the fact that well-being is more than a state of health 
in the absence of problems, right? We, we, just, we just think that, okay, I, I'm not sick, therefore I'm healthy. Mm-hmm. But um, that's not true because sometimes we could have a chronic disease and we can't do anything about it. But that doesn't prevent us from actually experiencing well-being and cultivating our well-being. So we really try to interpret well-being as this positive state of flourishing, of thriving, where we are living to the fullest of our capacity, of our abilities, and we're also creating, I guess, a positive impact in the world, whatever that means uh, for us. So it's important that we embrace both the good and the bad, mm-hmm. uh, right? Because otherwise people think like that, you know, well-being is just about being always happy and always smiling, always strong. That's not possible, right? We also want to uh, embrace and learn from, let's say, the, what we define bad experiences or bad thoughts and bad feelings because they are important as well. Our programs have balance within the program structure where children are participating in skateboarding or other sports alongside learning activities. And I think that speaks to different facets of well-being and of health, um, so the physical, but also the psychological and and the cognitive aspects. We also focus on creating safe spaces so that children of all backgrounds feel comfortable learning in our spaces. We try to incorporate trauma-informed programming in terms of how the teachers, how the educators are interacting with the students, how the sports classes and skateboarding classes are structured, and as well how the classroom is set up, how the curriculum is taught. It's all from a trauma-informed lens as much as possible. And also we use the life skill curriculum within our programming. So we have programs around creating positive role models for girls. We have intercultural exchanges. um, And then we focus on healthy relationships, communication, and other aspects of, of life skills for students. So I think it's multifaceted for us. So the speakers all implement teachings of well-being from an early age into their work. How important is well-being when it comes to learning? Learning, if you don't feel good, you're not going to be able to learn. Uh, if you're hungry, your focus is out of control, is not in control. It's the same as adults. If you are not physically healthy, if you are not in your right mind, you're thinking of something else, you're not going to be able to focus. You're not going to be able to learn anything new. There's times that you have to just take a break because you personally know that you won't be able to, 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 to work that day. It's the same with, with students and it's the same with children, that for them to learn is the same as adults, but even more because students are just learning to be who they are. So they don't really understand that, oh, it's because I'm hungry is the reason why I'm acting out in class or I didn't burn a lot of my energy this morning, so I'm not going to be able to focus later in the afternoon. So it's the same as adults, but even with kids, it's more important for them, I feel, to be healthier. So I think that if children are healthy and have a sense of well-being, then that means that they're able to actually focus and experience positive learning in the classroom and also in their daily life. If children are stressed out, then they're either overstimulated or understimulated. Their self-regulation is off and they're not in a good space to be able to take in new information and process. So I think well-being also ties in with having respectful teachers, having the life skills aspects of the education programming, and also having a friendly and encouraging learning environment where children are allowed to make mistakes, to experiment, to fail, to get up again, and to be encouraged without being shamed at all. I also think that learning through play gives children a positive start in education and that this in turn stays with them throughout their lives. 
I would say that well-being is deeply connected to learning. I think actually it should be at the core of learning. First and foremost, I am a big, big, big believer in the transformative power of education. I mean, I've been involved in this field for a few years now. And for me, the goal of education really goes beyond you know, the mere task of learning facts or concepts or skills. I really believe that the main purpose of education is to guide the learner to embark on what is really a lifelong journey of self discovery and self-transformation to become a better human being. I really believe this is the, this is the core purpose of education, to really transform us to become better human beings. A human being that is more aware of themselves, but also is more compassionate towards others and committed to give service to other people on the planet. So in a way, it's, uh, I see this learning for change making, it's education for change making. So if we agree on this, you know, with this premise, you really see how well-being has to be at the core of learning. And I'm going to explain two reasons why I think this is, uh, this is the case. And of course, there's many more, but for concisiveness' sake, I'll just try to be brief. The first element is that more and more people are realizing that emotional intelligence is important. Until now, education and learning has been focused on you know, intellectual intelligence, on learning facts and concepts, you know, abstract ideas. And finally, we're getting the recognition that emotional intelligence is also important to help people succeed both in their personal and professional life. For me, from a change-making perspective, again, so to try and uh, make people more engaged citizens, you know, so they're contributing, EQ, which is emotional intelligence, is essential um, because when we focus on our emotional well-being, we can learn to cultivate compassion, empathy, and kindness. This is both towards ourselves, but also towards other people on the planet. We actually are, what we're doing is that we're expanding our circle of compassion so that we care for all beings on earth. So for me, this is really important. And that's why well-being has to be at the core. It's in particular, in this case, would be emotional well-being. The other aspect, which I think for the educators uh, who will listen to us is very interesting, um, is the fact that we know that learning happens where the soil is fertile. If we're too comfortable, so if I'm asked to learn something I already know, I don't have the drive. You know, There's nothing that is pushing me to learn. And therefore, I'm not going to learn because it's too comfortable. On the other end of the spectrum, if I'm too uncomfortable, I don't learn because I'm too stressed and our, my brain basically shuts down because the task is too advanced, maybe it's too difficult or it's too uncertain. So we see that actually the best conditions for learning are when we are pushed out of our comfort zone, so we're not comfortable, and we, we're asked to stretch ourselves, but not to the point where we end up panicking. So it is a state of what we call is relative anxiety. Um, so to optimize learning, what happens though is that when I inhabit this state of relative anxiety, I also need to find a time to step back, to retreat again into my comfort zone from time to time. Because otherwise, if I spend too much time in, a, in this stretch zone, so to say, I end up feeling exhausted because I'm always stimulated all the time. And we see this very often for students where they're overly stimulated or sometimes they're understimulated. <laughs> so I think that if we bring well-being into the education, and by education, again, I mean learning, what we do is that one, we are helping people to find the courage to step out of their comfort zone to learn something new because they need that push. Second, what we're doing is that we're helping them to build the resilience to try again every time they fail. We know that learning is also, there's many mistakes, there's many you know, ups and downs. So we have to stand up again. So resilience is really critical to become better learner. And third, what we're doing is that we're helping people to cultivate self-compassion 
to, ca to take care of themselves. Because, again, we need to look after ourselves, to step back and to recharge a little. That's fine. We need to breathe. So I think this is why it's really important to include you know, well-being in, in, in learning. That's why it's so critical. And again, there is large amount of research that points out to the increasing levels of stress, of anxiety, of depression even among young learners. And it's not rocket science, right? That when we are not doing well, if I'm not doing well mentally, physically, emotionally, my learning is hindered. On the other hand, when I'm thriving, I have a better capacity to absorb new knowledge and actually practice and learn new skills. Just to build on what I said before, in addition to building communities, to creating spaces that are fun and joyful and provide respite and spaces where people can build their capacity, uh, we also place a great emphasis on self-care. So how do you take care of yourself and your children and your family and your community in times of crises? So we do this across our different programs. We do that with our own team here and with the humanitarians that we work. Because when you're exposed to situations that are really difficult, you know, situations that are potentially traumatic, being forcibly displaced, you've taken an incredibly difficult journey into the country that you're in right now and face discrimination along the way, it's really important to be able to recognize and acknowledge the impact of those experiences and then have ways and strategies for taking care of yourself or making sure that you're able to overcome those experiences, you know, with as little impact as possible, as little ne negative impact. And when we emphasize self-care, we really, what we're trying to achieve there is that e even in the most difficult of circumstances, people can be transformed and, and, and their resilience can carry them through and they can build a capacity through that experience. So we really try and kind of create space and work with people in a way that builds their skills of self-care. And what is the most encouraging result that you've seen from your work? So I think sports and creative education are super powerful tools for inclusion and they can help children to value a wider range of skills in their life. Um, so one specific example is Tida's story and she's a student of ours in Cambodia. She has some learning difficulties and as well, she has problems walking. And she really didn't feel confident at first to join the skateboarding programming. A few years, I think, she would sit on the sidelines during the skateboarding part of the programming and she was very shy and she, she didn't want to join. Um, but with time, the educators and her own facilitator that would come with her to the programming encouraged her to join. And once she did join, we saw all these changes happen for her socially, confidence-wise. So she said she felt really happy. She thought she couldn't do all these things before because of her disability. And now she knows that she's part of the group. So she's pushing on the skateboard. She's dropping in. She's doing kick turns. She's being sociable. And all these skills also translate into the classroom. So it makes her confident to learn, to put up her hand first, to answer questions in the, in the creative classes as well. I can speak a little bit more to her story. I think that this illustrates really well that... Every child should have access to educational opportunities and recreational activities to, that make childhood enjoyable for them. 
an atmosphere that is aware of children's health and psychological safety and well-being will encourage growth at the individual level for every child, no matter what their background. So the first example that comes to mind in these participants, so after a summit um, where well-being was weaved throughout, so it wasn't the main focus of the experience, but there were different well-being activities throughout. So this participant, at the end of the day, so at the end of the experience, what they shared is that at the beginning, they were very skeptical about well-being. They thought it was something fluffy and without substance, you know, something just for when people have time, you know, they didn't really think that it would make any difference. And actually, they were really skeptical about it. It's also resistant. But what happened is that after experiencing it, they saw the benefits on themselves. And we're talking about someone who at the moment was experiencing um, some mental and emotional ill health uh, episodes. So they were distressed. And what they, they mentioned is that focusing on this well-being, it allowed them to have the space to, one, feel fully the positive and the negative, right? So very often, whether it is in education, at work, we're only asked to bring certain parts of ourselves, right? We're wearing a mask. Mm-hmm. We can only share so much. Whereas this person was allowed to do was to feel fully, to embrace the full spectrum of human emotions, which is something really important to live a wholehearted life. Second, they mentioned that also it allowed them to step back and recharge without feeling guilty. Because what we see very often is that we live in a very fast-paced society where we shouldn't really be taking the time, right, to look after ourselves because there is always something else we can do. There's always, you know, another event we can attend, a networking opportunity, and this and that. So literally, it's never ending. And when we take time off, we just feel guilty. So actually, they mentioned that it allowed them to take this step back, to recharge, to reflect, to breathe without feeling guilty. And third, uh, they also mentioned allow them to practice self-kindness and self-compassion to address the negative thought patterns and harmful behaviors they were experiencing. And again, this is very important because what we see is that very often people are good at being kind towards others. You know, they say, yeah, of course you should take some time off. Of course you should, you know, look after yourself. But with themselves, they're really, really harsh. I mean, I, I know that from my own experience, you know, that my standards for myself are super high and I'm much harsher with myself than I would be with anyone. Mm-hmm. And so it's learning about treating ourselves like a friend. So this for me was really impactful because by the end of the retreat, this person actually experienced an improvement in their mental and emotional health. But also, and I think this is the most important thing, it was not just the, let's say, temporary relief that they experienced in these days, but is that they really opened their eyes to the importance of well-being at work and in life. So now they can actually, they're better equipped at looking, looking after themselves. So it really served as a, as a catalyst for change. So this is an example from an individual point of view. I will uh, make another example from a more organizational point of view because I think it's, uh, we also focus on that. Um, so a couple of years ago, we, had, we uh, hosted a retreat uh, on well-being for an organization. So we had the members of this organization attending the well-being retreat. And one of them commented that it was a really transformative experience, both personally and for the, for the entire team. And, a, and a, a quote here, this person said, well-being is such an important element in ensuring that social impact professionals are able to achieve their impact. And as we have learned the hard way, it doesn't come naturally. So it is fundamental to have the kind of support and guidance that Recipes for Wellbeing provides integrated into an organization's development. 
end quote. I'm mentioning this because it really confirms the fact that the work we do is not just for the individual well-being, but it has a wider impact also on, on the organization. And this is very important because organizations are really good at looking after the well-being of their employees. And so if you can bring well-being to an organization, you're not just serving your employees better, but you're serving yourself as an organization better because you work better. You're more creative. There is the communication channels are open. There is a culture of trust, of feedback. So actually you're making your, let's say, if you want to use traditional business language, you're making yourself more competitive in the market. So we can actually bring well-being into the strategy of the organization. So I think this is what really makes me hopeful and grateful about our work. Um, of course, we're just at the beginning. The, the journey ahead of us is really long and full of obstacles. But I'm confident because we are very committed to serving others through well-being. And once people experience it, there really is a click, you know, something changes in their, in their awareness, in their consciousness. And, you know, once you open your eyes, you can't close them again. You can't unsee what you've seen. Then, of course, it's a matter of whether you as an individual, as an organization, as a, as a, as a society, you actually make the steps, you know, you take the steps to actually make a commitment to well-being. But raising that self-awareness is really important. And so we've seen loads of these examples, you know, throughout the workshops and, uh, and retreats that people were like, aha, I didn't realize they have these aha moments and these deep realizations, which for us are the first steps to actually walking on this journey of well-being. We run an early childhood program called Beitna, which means our home in Arabic. And, you know, one of the joys of working with really young children is that you can see the impact of your work pretty quickly. And that, you know, we have children that arrive in our sessions feeling nervous, feeling, you know, not having experienced that play and space and safety that Beitna provides. And then over a few sessions, you see how they've made friends and they, you know, they're able to express themselves and participate and, 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 and experience joy and, and laugh. And, and for us, that's, you know, that's just such an important and meaningful impact that we can create. We, we, you know, we also see that when parents are given the opportunity to really take care of their child, to have the opportunity to play with their children, to kind of focus on their needs. And then they see the difference that that makes to their child. You can see the impact of that immediately on the whole family. So we really try and kind of encourage community building and relationship building, mm -hmm. because that is a resource that's available to communities that have seen this kind of disaster and crisis all the time. You know, that's the only thing that you have. You have your connection with your child, with your family, maybe with the people that you're around. So we really try and do activities that strengthens, that strengthen those relationships so that people can be self-sustaining. In the school that I teach in, the students are, and it's probably in a lot of other schools as well. So with the technology aspect and um, what kids are doing nowadays, they go home and you, if you ask them, oh, I played on iPad all day, I ate junk food and I didn't get any exercise and just sat in the house. This, between those students and the students that actually where their parents support them and take them to football practice or take them to gymnastics or take them to do 
physical activity in the park. You can see the difference how the students act. The students in our school, we encourage them to do after-school sports, after-school competition, after-school, during school sport. Uh, during recess, we've organized a uh, lunch league, which we will be starting. The students in grade our fourth grade have been doing football tournaments and it causes them to be more focused because if they don't act well during school, they won't be able to play in the tournament. Not a punishment, but it is, it's a way to get them to focus and go in the right direction. Next year, we'll be starting a flagship for the students uh, 20 minutes in the morning. They will be able to do physical activity with us. And we're hoping that this is going to cause the students to be more focused in school, uh, be able to learn with the teachers, um, with also with having recess during the afternoon. They will have more physical activity. And then if they have PE, they will have more physical activity. So we're hoping that that is, is what's going to drive the students. The students that participate in after-school sports, you can tell a difference. We have one student here who never participated in any sport. He would try to be a, like a class clown and his focus wouldn't be there. And he, this is his first year coming out for sport. And you can totally see a difference the way he acts in PE. The teachers are saying that he's acting better. And because he's focused and he wants to do physical activity, he wants to participate and he wants to show that, that he's ready to learn and, and ready to work. So that was one good outcome of this year of, of the many other outcomes that we've had with the students that participate in sport or physical activity. This got me thinking, all of this sounds great, but if there are so many benefits to reap from well-being in early education, why have we yet to embrace it on a large scale? So I asked them to talk about what they think are the biggest challenges or limitations in their work. So for me, it's educating people who make decisions about programming and people who are, you know, in positions of power where, you know, you can really place well-being at the heart of learning, not just in the refugee context, but in all contexts. I think that is, remains the biggest challenge because we're still operating this sort of false dichotomy that is, you know, learning is somehow separate from development as a whole. Yeah. And it isn't, you know, it's a, you know, people develop in a holistic way. And, and if you want to, particularly for our world now where information is readily available in your fingertips and actually you need create other skills, you know, more complex learning, like create creativity and problem solving and all of that. And all of those things are to do with emotions and well-being. So I think it's more about taking a look at how we approach learning as a whole and changing the way that we do that. That's the biggest issue. We have enough data now to show that educational programs, both in refugee context and, and other contexts, my previous work was with communities that were facing multiple deprivations in the UK. And most of the programs that put well-being you know, at their core yield really good results you know that's we have enough data to show that so i think the issue is one of policy and kind of making it a universal thing rather than a limitation on the approach in some of the contexts that skate design is working um there's a lot of external factors that we don't have any control over so the war in Afghanistan, for example, uh, domestic abuse that children might experience at home, bullying that they experience in the rest of their school day where we don't have direct um, control over the environment and just a lack of safety in, in the streets too. And all these things can be stressors for children uh, and affect how they're thinking when they're in the classroom or when they're playing sports with other children. So 
yeah, as, as much as possible, we try to encourage students to let them know that they can make a difference in their communities and that they can make small or even big changes um, that reach beyond the classroom. And we just really try to empower the communities to make decisions which work for them so that children are valued as influencers and, and decision makers in their broader community. I think it's common worldwide for children to be a bit undervalued, children and youth, in terms of what contributions they can make. And I think that's a limitation that children are always up against. And we try to create an environment where they, they don't have to feel that limitation. And they are encouraged to dream big and think big and think about the changes that they want to see in their communities. Um, but we, we don't tell them what change to make. We just try to give the tools to make the change. Well, a lot of parents would say that, oh, you need to go to school and that's where you're going to learn everything in school. They need to also learn, be learning the same things at home. So sometimes where you have the problem um, is that the standards and the activity that they're doing in school isn't taken to the home. So parents that are just letting their kids sit on iPad all day and aren't being physically involved with taking them to a practice or taking them to do physical activity or taking them... Uh, out of the house, a lot of times they'll say in the, in the desert area, oh, we don't take them out because it's too hot. Well, I come from New York, Niagara Falls, where we have lake effect snow. And for four months out of the year, it's freezing cold. So it's the opposite of what is here. So my parents still figured a way to get us in the car and take us to our dance lesson or take my brother to his karate lesson. And we didn't even have the means. Somehow, I don't know how my parents got us involved into all these activity, <laughs> activities, but they did. Here, there's so many things to do indoors and just um, getting the parents on board with not only the teachers, getting them to go out and be physically active. If it's not nice outside and it's dusty, take them to something that's indoors. Or if it's beautiful outside, they shouldn't be sitting inside. Go out and play. And I think a lot of times now the students are, are kind of being disserviced because they, they're just accustomed to coming home and sitting on the iPad, pushing them to do more things. As PE teachers, we try to push them. Are you signed up for something outside of school? Why don't you ask your parents to get you involved in gymnastics? You're really good at gymnastics. Oh, I tried, but my mom doesn't want to take me or, or those are always the excuses. So just trying to get the parents on board as well as not just rely, making I think that the only time that they can be physically active is in school. Um, so that what, what I think is one of the biggest limitations when it comes to students in school. I think there's uh, several limitations, but I think one of the core limitations I see or something that is kind of underpinning is, and that I've experienced also myself, is fear. As a society, uh, we don't like to talk about how we feel in general. You know, we don't talk about how we feel mentally, emotionally, physically, spiritually, and the same applies to schools, universities, and other learning communities. So let's talk about these learning communities. Mm -hmm. um, let's go a bit deeper. So mental ill health for younger people is still a taboo. Um, we don't really talk about it. We don't even know how to address it in most cases. We also see that many teachers, professors, educators are afraid of tapping into the field of emotions to connect with their pupils, to actually make the subjects more engaging, to uh, allow them to really feel as well. We see also how mainstream learning is mostly an intellectual exercise, as if the body wasn't an incredibly powerful and resourceful vehicle for learning. 
And of course, everyone is afraid of asking the very big questions in schools, you know, the, the questions that make life worth living. Mm-hmm. So we're we're really focusing on a narrow definition of, of learning. So I think that partly this fear is induced also by the society we live in, right? Uh, we live in a very fast society uh, that, if, that is focused on the short term. So we want, you know, the gains now, here and now. We want instant gratification. We don't really care about anyone but our own survival. Um, and the society wants to act faster and bigger. And, and there is, a, you know, without stopping for a second to reflect and breathe. So there, there is an incredible amount of pressure on learners and also on their educators to, to cope with this society. Um, and I think that that's why it's not, uh, it's not, serving, it's not serving anyone uh, really well. But that's why it's so difficult sometimes to even introduce the concept of well-being. But I have to say there are more and more learning hubs that are popping up all around the globe that are thinking about well-being connected to learning and they're also practicing it. So there is uh, schools and universities that are adopting uh, curricula based around mindfulness, kindness, empathy, uh, because they know that these are they're not soft skills, but they're essential life skills. You know, uh, they're, they're really essential to the success of these uh, people, not just as you know, professionals, but as human beings, as members of society. So there is a really you know, interesting changes happening in this field. We also see that, for example, conferences are starting to play around with the idea of including well-being spaces for attendees. Because very often you go to a conference, it's super, of course, it's, uh, it's inspiring, but it's super overwhelming. There's, it's loud, it's chaotic, you don't understand anything. And for many people, especially introverted, this means that they can't benefit from it. So we're starting to create this well-being space, um, spaces where attendees can also step back, they can reflect and recharge so that they can then go out and engage again with the event and can really optimize their learning. So I'm really hopeful that change is underway and uh, I am part of it with Recipes for Wellbeing, um, but it doesn't mean it will be easy. I think there's, there's, there's also a limitation that sometimes people, they're a bit afraid, you know, of this, uh, this well-being, like, oh, what happens? Do, do we open a Pandora box if we talk about mental, mental ill health? And I'm like, well, in a way, yes, but then you're opening up new possibilities for people to, be, to thrive. And I think for me, it's, it's a risk I'm willing to, to take. There you have it, four individuals who are advocating for well-being through different initiatives all over the world. We hope these interviews shed some greater light on the importance of well-being and its significance in the education sector. We would like to extend our gratitude towards Zalosh Talamzai, Greta Rossi, Talia Kaufman, and Jennifer Zafron for participating in this special episode of Wise Words. Please check our show notes for links to learn more about them and their respective work. Did you learn something new about well-being after listening to this episode? We sure hope you did. Please subscribe to our podcast if you enjoyed listening to this and send us any questions or requests you may have for future episodes. You can find our email in the show notes. See you next time. Bye for now.